so this morning, uh, we are going to go back to our study on the book of Exodus. We took uh, the ever-natural detour through Matthew chapter 13, which I hear a lot of people do in the middle of their study of the Exodus is that they go to Matthew chapter 13. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a trend follower. <clears throat> but this morning, we're going to go back to the study of the Exodus. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Exodus chapter 6. There's an old saying that uh, I'm sure most of you are familiar with, so because I'm confident you are familiar with it, I, I would like you to complete it for me. Okay? You ready? If at first you don't succeed... Now, here's what's interesting about that. Um, why are there two tries? I mean, it almost insinuates you're going to fail the next time too. So there's that third try that's put in there. And when I think of that statement, I hear it in my mother's voice. And I don't know if my mom ever actually said that to me. I know she said sick and tired a lot, um, but I don't know if that one ever came from her mouth. And uh, the statement itself is not really profound. Um, if it doesn't work the first time, just try again. Like, it's pretty simple as far as what it's communicating but if it's so simple, why has it become part of our lexicon where we all know what it means and how to finish the statement? And I, and I think it's because there's this one simple thing, which is um, no one wants to try again. So we want to succeed the first time. So there's this saying now that reminds us that if we don't succeed the first time, the best thing to do is try again. And then when you fail that time, try one more time. I'm, I'm convinced here this is a three-try rule that's become a part of who we are. We want things to work the first time. And I think, <clears throat> excuse me, this has always been true to some degree, but especially now when things come to us so easily, when you know, the entire world of knowledge is available to us in the palm of our hands. We want things to work, and we don't like it when they don't immediately work. Now, you know, I get that. Like, that's a frustrating experience. But, you know, on some level, it's kind of like our time is valuable. And sure, some things may take more than one try, maybe two, but please don't waste my time by having me do something over and over again. You know what one of the most, one of the experiences that makes people the most angry is having to get on any kind of support call or text or chat, right? Because you're already angry by the time you get there. It didn't work. And then you have to wait for someone to come on the line. And inevitably, that first person that comes on to help you passes you off to someone else. And what is the first question that they ask you when you get to that second person? Can you tell me what the problem is? I just spent 10 minutes explaining to someone else what the problem is. At this point, the problem is you. <laughs> you are the problem. Now, these feelings are compounded. Um, if, if you did not really feel uh, ready or prepared to do whatever it was in the first place. You know, trying again is really difficult when you fail the first time and you feel like you were completely out of your element. You get what I'm saying? Um, sometimes we have to do hard things, and sometimes those hard things require us to jump into the deep end when we are not ready. We're not even sure we can doggy paddle. But here we are. And then when things don't work, our response is not, well, I should try again. You know, I almost just drowned, but let me just jump right back in. Our response is not, uh, maybe I should try again. Our response is, 
I told you I wasn't ready. I told you this would happen. That if I jumped in, I would barely make it out alive. Why did you tell me to do that? Whoever you is, right? I lived in constant fear as a child for a lot of reasons. I mean, sharks are everywhere. Let's just be honest. They're in swimming pools. They're in lakes. They're in the ocean. This is uh, not open for discussion. Um, but I lived in constant fear as a child because no matter where we were or what we were doing, my dad might decide at any moment that my sisters and I needed to sing for whoever might be in front of us. In the middle of dinner with a bite of food in my mouth, sing. Out amongst strangers, sing. This was just sort of uh, uh, the way that things were. And, and saying, no, I'm not going to sing, Father, uh, was not an option. We had to sing if we were told to. And, you know, it was weird. It was weird. Like, no other kids were singing in this restaurant, so why are we singing in this restaurant? What is my point? Well, I think my point is that it's hard to try. And the very phrase to try means that success is not guaranteed. You don't know necessarily what the outcome is going to be. I mean, the word itself, try, means to attempt to do or accomplish. An attempt is not ironclad, my friends. You might fail at whatever it is that you're trying to do. Now, sometimes that is exciting. If you're trying to figure something out or fix something or you're really interested in that project, then if you fail figuring out what went wrong and how to fix that, like that can be a really rewarding process for us. On the other hand, it can also be extremely frustrating to know that your first attempt failed and you have to try again. In fact, sometimes it is harder to try because in trying what it may be, whatever it is, we are risking some part of ourselves. You know, it's hard to do something where you might fail and you know you might fail. And you know it might not work out. It's even harder if you're on the second try. Let's not even talk about the third try. Maybe we'll look bad. Maybe we'll feel stupid or embarrassed. What if the success of our try really matters? Like, like this needs to get done. And then what happens if we still fail? Perhaps... In these cases, we want to adopt uh, this classic proverb from uh, one of our great philosophers, Marty McFly, <laughs> from Back to the Future. When he was talking about his music, he said, what if I send it in and they don't like it? What if they say I'm no good? What if they say, get out of here, kid, you got no future, which is ironic because he was going back to the future, like, get it? Uh, I mean, I just don't think... I can take that kind of rejection. Now, let's raise the stakes. All right, we've been talking generalities here. Um, so let's generally raise the stakes. If we are doing something for God, how do we, what do we expect to happen when we do that thing? We expect for it to succeed. After all, who are we doing it for? Now, did God tell us to do that thing? <laughs> that is my favorite response to any question I've ever asked. Because <laughs> what I heard was, mm, like, you, you couldn't say yes or no. Like, let's just, you know, let's just have it out there. We expect success. And I don't know about you, but there have been several times in my life where I have tried to do something for God, and I was not successful. It didn't go like how I thought it would go. It didn't work 
like how I thought it would work. And these moments where you are doing something for God and it doesn't work out, there are several questions which naturally come to the surface. Is this failure my fault? Did I not have enough faith? Was it God's fault? He didn't deliver when I expected him to. Is it even the right thing for me to do to try again? Or is there some lesson I'm supposed to learn in this failing? Right? So this morning, as we start the second part of our study of the Exodus, we need to look at the background once again, since it's been a, a minute since we've been here. We spent six weeks studying Exodus 1 through 5. And if you uh, were not here or missed some of those, I would like to refer you to our YouTube channel where all of those sermons are stored for posterity. Uh, Moses was a man who did not really know who he was. He was a Hebrew, a slave, Egyptian, royalty, a murderer, a fugitive, a shepherd, a husband, and a father. And all of that was just in chapter 2. All those things. Then in chapter 3, he becomes someone who is called by God. And he had finally settled into a life that seemed good to him. And it was at that point that God appeared to him in the form of, are you ready? An unburnt fiery bush. He did not really know God as well as we think he did. He knew him as the God of his ancestors, as the God of covenant and promise. But we have to remember that this God had been quiet for generations. There was no scripture, no temple, no formal worship practices, no law. And so God in the form of this bush, speaks to Moses and tells Moses that he wants him to go back to Egypt, to the place where the Egyptians wanted to kill him and the Hebrew people had rejected him. And he's to go back to the king of that place and demand that he let his entire labor force that supports the whole economy go. That's a pretty big ask. And Moses, because it was such a big ask, had some concerns. Um, and God, in the process of talking through this with Moses, uh, he gave answers to all of those concerns. And he gave these answers and then Moses had more concerns. So God's first round of answers didn't really, and this goes on and on where he's worried about something and God gives him an answer. So ultimately, God convinces Moses that he can go, that he should go, that it's good for him to go, that he better go or God is angry with him which is not something that anyone wants. So when he gets there, he told the people about what God was doing, about God's plan to deliver him, and all of the people worshiped God in that moment. Now, that's a pretty big moment for Moses himself. Because remember, he left as a reject. So the fact that he got to his people and told them this is what God is doing, and they worship God, that was really encouraging to him. And so that was step one, was to go back to the people and tell them what's going on. Step two is to go to Pharaoh and to make his demand. And Pharaoh was disinclined to acquiesce to his request, which means he said no. But he did not leave it there in just saying no. He demanded that the Hebrew slaves make as many bricks as they had been making the whole time, but they had to do it without the straw that Egypt was providing. 
And straw was necessary because it's like rebar and concrete. It holds everything together. So they had to journey across the land of Egypt to find scraps of straw to make the bricks that they had already been making and they couldn't fall behind. So maybe you can identify with this feeling. God showed up and things got worse. I mean, if we're totally honest with one another, that's not such an uncommon experience. That God shows up and things get harder. The people were not happy. In fact, they demanded that God, who sent Moses there to do these things, should judge Moses for the evil that he brought upon his people. So Moses, in turn, cried out to God from Exodus chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. What did Moses think was going to happen? Well, we don't really know. But his first try with his own people was successful when he wasn't sure it would be. And so it stands to reason that once he got through this first hard thing, he thought, well, shoot, God's working this out after all. Where is Pharaoh? But he gets there, and Pharaoh acts as Pharaoh would. He's the king. There is no other God. He doesn't even know who this God is. Why would I let this people go? And Moses' frustration is understandable. He is only doing these things because God told him to do it. So how is it that this didn't work out? How is it that God told him to go to this place and do this thing, and now everyone is angry with him because their lives are remarkably more difficult? Is this the plan of God? God, you had to appear to me in an unburnt, fiery bush to tell me to go do this, and this is the result of what has happened. If at first you don't succeed. Why would he try again? Why would he? I mean, it's easy for us to sit on this side of the story and say, Moses, God is on your side. But if we were to have this conversation with Moses in that moment, Moses would say, yeah, and look how that worked out. Everybody hates me worse than they did before because my actions brought more trouble on them then they already have, and these are slaves without any rights. I made life harder for slaves without any rights. Do you know how difficult that is to do? Well, apparently it's not that difficult. You just walk up to Pharaoh and say, let him go. So this morning, we're going to look at an important moment in this story where Moses is broken down and frustrated he doesn't know where to go, who to talk to, what to do. He doesn't know, honestly, whether God is going to follow through with this or not. And he doesn't see how God is going to change this situation. He came up against the power of this world, and he was sent packing with lots and lots of baggage. So, 
What is God going to do? How is he going to respond to this? So part one, God had a message for Moses, and that message was, I'm just getting started. You need to give me time to work. Okay, now this breaks down a a simple premise, which we've talked about, we've said it this morning, but I just want to state it again. We expect that when God works, there will be immediate returns. And we get really impatient with him when there are not the immediate returns we expect there to be. After all, like Moses said, aren't I doing this for, I'm, I'm doing this for you. So why are you not delivering on your end? Let's look at Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Now, this statement, this one verse, is a powerful message to Moses if Moses can hear it. God gave Moses some reassurance here. He says, my plan is to deliver my people from Pharaoh. And I know that hasn't happened yet. But God has the audacity to use that first word. You see it in his quote? Now. Well, God, I already went and did what you told me to do. So you're saying that since I failed now, you're going to do it? Now's a little late. Why, why does it have to be now? But here's an interesting question. In all of God's communication with Moses, did God ever say that Moses would strut in to Pharaoh and have immediate success. No, he never said that. In fact, he acknowledged that Pharaoh would not let the Hebrew people go until a mighty hand compels him. He he told Moses all the things that would happen. He told him what the end result would be, that His people would be free, but he never said that Pharaoh would immediately fold. So where did that expectation come from? Did God ever say it would be easy? Did he ever say it would be hard? No. So get this. He didn't say it would be easy. He didn't say it would be hard. But what he did say is that you are going to face resistance. It's going to happen. Pharaoh is not going to want his people to go. But didn't Moses have God on his side? Get this. He had God in his side when he went in and failed. He did. God was with him. And the words that God had spoken were still true in spite of the fact that it didn't work like Moses thought it would. And hear this. Victory was still assured. Victory was still assured. Because here's the thing. Who had shown himself to Pharaoh? Moses did. Is Moses special? Not especially. (laughs) I mean, he's special because God called him. But God himself had not shown himself to Pharaoh. Does Moses have a mighty hand? Not really. He has very average hands. God has not shown up. 
And the only thing that had happened so far in this process with Pharaoh is that Moses walked in like an idiot and demanded that Pharaoh let the Hebrew people go. That is all that's happened so far. It's like the thesis statement of an essay. You are going to let my people go. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Prove it. There was nothing that Moses could have done to make this successful. And that's because it was not on Moses to make this happen. God was going to do it. And God says to him in that verse, I am still going to move. And this is what is going to happen. Don't be so fixated on what went wrong on your first try. So part two of God telling him what's going on, he says, I am God and I have made a promise. Now those are strong words. Let's look at what he says here in verses 2 through 5. <clears throat> God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. This is one of my favorite sentences in all the Bible. You find it in different places where God is talking about things. But this statement, I am the Lord, is a declaration of his godness. When he says, I am the Lord, what else is he saying? You are not. More than that, I am the Lord. Is there another Lord? Is there another God? No. He is the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Okay. This is God just spitting truth right here. He wants this to be established and for Moses to recognize what's going on. It's an important moment. And so what does he say? Again, he says, I am the Lord. And then he says, I am the God of your ancestors. Now, this is an important statement uh, and a reminder of the continuity of what's actually happening here. That Moses is part of this really big story. Not this one small story that he's so wrapped up in at this moment. God is the one who called Abraham out to be the father of his people. He is the one who started this entire business in the first place. He is the one who gave his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And in this sort of side note, which at first seems kind of puzzling, I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known. At first glance, it's kind of like, well, what? But we have to ask ourselves, why would that particular statement mean a lot to Moses at that place and time? Because what God is essentially saying is that I am the God of your ancestors, and they don't know me as well as you do. It's powerful. They don't know me by this name. They don't know me like you know me. Furthermore, I made promises to them. I promised that they would be a people. I promised them the land of Canaan. And I have no intention of breaking those promises. That is not what I do. If I make a promise, I am going to keep it. 
And I have heard the cries of my people. I'm aware of their suffering, and I am going to do something about it. Moses, I did not send you here to increase their suffering. I know that's how it feels at this moment. That this is the story, but it's not the story. The story is, I am going to deliver my people from Pharaoh, and you get to be a part of it. So let me work. There's an important important point of reflection here. If God says he is going to deliver his people, when do his people think that will happen? Yeah, right away. You said you're going to do it, so do it. Right? Many of you have had children, teenagers. You said you were going to do this thing. And it's not done. So do it. We have this expectation that God, especially when it comes to deliverance, to rescue that God will work right away. But we see here that even though God had promised deliverance, his people still had to make bricks without straw. Like that still happened. Even though God was going to deliver them, their lives did get harder once God intervened. And what does that tell us? It tells us something really important. You ready? The road to deliverance is not an easy road. Period. The road to deliverance is not an easy road. And and think about it in this way. They were slaves before God showed up. They had to deal with being even more of a slave before God delivered them. And the promise of God is still out there. Moses God gave to Moses, Moses gave it to them, but they still have to walk that path. They still have to. And in fact, you might even argue that this whole thing about making bricks without straw is important to their redemption. After all, if you know You need to be redeemed, and things are hard. How much more do you know you need redemption when they get worse? You know what I'm saying? We get used to a lot of bad, ugly, hard. And after time, it just becomes, you know, well, I'm a slave. This is what I do. But there is something about the deepening of the trouble that makes redemption that much more valuable in that moment. And God says, I have remembered my covenant. And again, this doesn't mean that God forgot the promises he made. What it means is it's it's time. Now you will see. Now. Pharaoh will see. Now my people will know. Which leads us to part three, which I'm calling bring the heat. From verses six through eight. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. I want to suggest something to you. 
And I want to suggest that the real power of God is not seen in how he shows himself in any given moment. You know, we're about to enter a time where he shows himself over and over again to Pharaoh through the plagues, through these mighty acts. That's not the real power of God. I mean, he can do those things, and they take no effort at all from him. You understand? Like, I can scratch my head. That's God turning the Nile to blood. Right? Like, God is powerful, and God does amazing and incredible things, but that is not what makes him such a great God. The gods of Rome, ancient Greece, North mythology, any, any sort of, you know, gods you want to look at, little g, could show up and do something godlike at any time. Throw lightning bolts, move mountains, whatever it was they were supposed to do. The real power of God is seen in his promises to his people and his commitment to fill them. That is what makes him the God that he is. Because God is in relationship with his people. He loves them. He wants to be their God. He wants them to be his people. And it is out of this deep desire that God makes his promises. This is not a dad, you know, can we go to the park kind of moment. Sure, yeah, later. Right? That is not this. When God speaks his promises... They flow from who he is and the great love for his people. He wants to love, to provide, to protect, to be present. And the real miracle of this story is that God openly states these promises and then falls through with it. Why would he do this? Why would he care? Why would he say, you know what? I did make a promise to Abraham a long time ago. And that matters. So I'm going to step into the course of human history and change it forever. Who are we to receive that kind of attention? from the creator of the universe. Do you see it? God doesn't have to do any of these things. He chose to. And that is what makes him the Lord that we know. That is what makes him who he is. Therefore, who is going to stop God from keeping his promises? Was your first attempt a failure? No. This is what Pharaoh is going to do. He's going to refuse to let my people go. Why? Because he's Pharaoh. But I am the Lord. Haven't we heard all this before in this story? Yeah, we have. We've heard it more than once. This is a retelling of things God has already said. So why is it so important that God say all of these things again? Well, because Moses has heard it, but he doesn't know it. And something that's important for us to realize is that Moses has not yet seen God be God. It's important for us to realize that. His frustration is natural. I mean, he saw God do something incredible with the unburned fiery bush, but he has not seen God act in the way 
that God says he is going to act. He hasn't, he hasn't seen that. And so, in a lot of ways, Moses doesn't know if this is going to happen. And if he's going simply by his track record, you know, he succeeded, and then he failed, and then he failed ultimately with the people because they hate him now. It's hard to remember sometimes what God has promised to us when things go off the rails. And it's even more difficult to be patient for the fulfillment of the promises that God has made when things are not working out like we think they should. And when you're in the middle of the storm, you just want the storm to be over. You don't care about it will one day be over. I will deliver you. You're looking at the waves, feeling the rain and the wind, and you're thinking, I, I just hope to make it to the next moment, God. If you're ready to deliver, God, now's a good time. Now's a good time. But what if the boat needs to wreck? in order for God to bring the deliverance he needs to bring. This is hard stuff, right? And the people's response proves that this is difficult from uh, verse 9. Moses reported this to the Israelites. So again, everything that God said and all the promises. But they did not listen to him because of their discouragement with harsh labor. We expect God to deliver the results we want in our time. And you know what? It, it's not really helpful when you're in the middle of something difficult and someone walks up to you and says, this too shall pass. Thanks! There, we don't want to fail. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to become even more of a slave than we were before. We don't want the boat to wreck. And we don't want to wait for God to do his thing. And, you know, there's, there's a saying like, all in God's time, you know, which is something that, you know, I think we tell ourselves because we don't really know what's going on. Well, God's timing is perfect. That's basically a way for us to say, Lord, come quickly. You know what I mean? Like, I can't do anything about what this is. I am pretty sure God will. And his perfect timing God's timing, I think, is right and on time. But that doesn't mean it feels right and on time for us. And these people, they've heard this before. Moses, the last time you spoke up for God, our lives got worse. But the real problem is they can't see past what is immediately happening to them to look up to what God will do. And that is one of the great truths of life. I might believe that God is faithful and good, but when everything around me is chaos and hurt, I can barely lift my head up for all of the things that are happening around me. Which leads us to part four. Moses was still feeling a certain way about things. So God reiterated these promises. Moses goes to the people and says, guys, God has these amazing promises for you. And the people say, <laughs> right? Great. What else does God want to promise? So in verses 28 through 30, 
Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Now if you remember, Moses has raised this objection before, way back at the beginning, when God was trying to convince him to go in the first place. Why did Moses feel this way? Didn't he know that God was on his side? I mean, God keeps telling him that, that he's on his side. But he did not know what that meant or how it was all going to work. Why? Because God hadn't done it yet. So far, Moses has only made things worse. Instead of finding his way back into citizenship with his people, they hate him. And this reminds us that Moses didn't want to do this thing in the first place. He felt not only underqualified, but incapable. How am I supposed to go demand something of Pharaoh when I'm not even comfortable speaking? He may not have known who he truly was, but he knew that he was not a leader. And he told God all of this. This is who I am. This is who you are calling. And now he had failed, just like he knew he would. He knew that he was not capable of doing the job. And, you know, one of the great lessons we see on this side is he was right. He wasn't capable at all. And God wants him to try again. These, listen, people's lives are at stake. I'm the wrong guy. This is not working. Which leads us, finally, to part five. You are more than yourself because I am the Lord. Look, this is not you, Moses, going up against Pharaoh. This is me, the Lord, going up against Pharaoh. And I know how this feels for you, but I am the Lord. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old. <laughs> And Aaron, 83, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Okay, let's, let's just skip over the age part. But God says a lot here in this passage as we close today. And, and the first statement is a doozy. You will be like God to Pharaoh. What, is, what does he mean? What he means is, I... I'm the Lord, and I have chosen you. And this is not you walking into this place. This is me walking into this place. And when I speak through you, it is not you talking. It is me talking. And in fact, you don't even have to talk. You can just stand there and let Aaron speak for you. And he is like... He's like your prophet. He is speaking the truth as you stand there as a representation of me. Who can stand against you when you stand there for God? Who can stand against you? No one can. 
But there's an important thing that God also recognizes here, which is he speaks in, a, in, in, in terms of what's coming. They don't know now, but they will. You don't know now, but you will. Egypt doesn't know now, but they will. And what will they all know? I am the Lord. And how will they know? Well, through different ways. Moses will know when, by God showing up with his mighty hand. The Hebrew people will know when they take their first step as free people. Egypt will know when they realize there is nothing they can do to stop this God. That their God does not compare. He is not the Lord. He says he is, but he's not. There is a time coming when everyone will know I am the Lord. And you're going to walk out of this place as my people. And there will be no doubt at that point who I am. We don't always know what God is going to do, how he's going to do it, what it's going to look like. In fact, let's just be more frank. We often don't know But our lack of knowledge pales in comparison to the promise of God. That he is the Lord, that no one can stand against him. That he will redeem and restore. That he will set free. And that one day, everyone will know. As Paul says in Philippians, right? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's incredible for us to look at this remarkable story, this story of God and a slave people overcoming the most powerful nation and king on earth. And to realize that he was just getting started. You know, he was just getting started. 